0: Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Would you please meet me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we will be focusing on Romans 3, 5, and 6. But to begin our time, uh, I want to make sure to read the fuller context, if you will. So we'll begin by reading verse 1 in chapter 3, and then on through verse 8 we'll pray, and then we will get to work. Sound good? So Romans chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8 read this way. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail. When you are judged, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Verse six says, by no means for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And then verse eight. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. These are the very words of God, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're coming to you you and to your word, and we thank you that one of the clear ways, one of the very tangible, practical ways. In experiential ways that we come to you, our Heavenly Father, is that we open your word. We open your word and we do not take it lightly. We open your word and we come ready to be exposed, to be read back, to be convicted, to be comforted, to be healed, to be loved. And we realize, Father, that's not just merely because we're reading some bit of wisdom or some good idea or some helpful thought or have a tweetable moment. But God, it's because you are with us. It's because you are at work through your word. And so I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, would you work on us even now as we come to your word, as we come to you, you're the one who knows what we need. You're the one who knows where we were tempted, where we fell short, where we sinned this past week. You're the one who knows where shame crept back into our story. You're the one who knows the burden that we're carrying right now. You're the one who knows that we hesitated to even hop on this call or watch this live stream this morning or to sing the songs or to even open our word. You are the God who knows all things about us and therefore you know exactly what we need. And so, Father, we come to you contrite, we come to you humbly, we come to you needy, and we desire that you would simply speak. Because a word from you is far better than countless words from any other human being. And so we thank you that you are the God who is there and you are not silent. So speak to us, help us, heal us, convict us, comfort us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, Amen. Well, we've been continuing to consider Paul's letter to uh, Roman Christians in first century, both Jews and Gentiles here in the book of Romans. And because we have been walking slowly through this text so that we would see all of the, the density and with clarity, understand what Paul is teaching his first audience. And by way of the Holy Spirit, what he is teaching us today, we've taken our time to do that. And yet, as we take our time, often we have to kind of stand back and get a wider view, if you will, of this particular text, that we won't uh, lose the, the greater purpose or the greater context for the details that we're looking at. In, in other words, we're holding the text really close, and it's important every now and then to, to hold the text further back so that we can see the wider story. And when we, when we do that, the larger context, when we see the larger context, everything that we're reading in Romans 3 is dependent, is connected to what Paul has just said in Romans Chapter 2. Generally speaking, he is speaking about God's righteousness, but God's righteous judgment over all people. And in particular, as we read that in chapter 2, in particular verse 5 tells us that there is a day coming, a day of judgment or a day of wrath or a day of the Lord. And that's our context that we're that we're now going through chapter 3 with that still in our minds with God's righteous judgment and this day of the Lord ahead of us, meaning that whatever Paul is going to teach us here in chapter 3 is directly connected to and must be understood through the lens of Romans chapter 2. And so let's look at Romans 2 verse 5, if you will. So move your eyes back up if you were in chapter 3. Eyes back up to Romans 2 verse 5. And there Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment, a righteous judgment rather, will be revealed. So there's a day coming, a day in the future, when God will bring the fullness of his judgment to this world. And so with this day in mind that Paul makes clear in chapter 2 to both Jew and Jews and Gentiles, he is making clear that they are both vulnerable on that day. That they are both vulnerable to the righteous judgment of God. And it's this theme which has been repeated throughout Romans thus far, that, that they are vulnerable because they have been disobedient to the law, that they have sinned. Everyone is under the wrath of God. And if they are outside of his His uh, grace and outside of Christ, if you are not in Christ, then you too face impending judgment on the day of the Lord. And even for those of us who are in Christ, we look towards this day in many respects with a, in a kind of unnerving feeling because it's still instructive for us to understand that God is going to judge all unrighteousness, that God is going to judge all things, all sin, in every single way that we have not been obedient to his word. And so this is instructive for us, whether or not we believe we are in Christ, whether or not we have confessed our sin, looking forward to this day informs the way that we daily live our lives, or rather it should. But not just his judgment, it's this idea of his full vision of, of the age to come. And that's what the Bible often talks about when we look at the future. When we look at this day of the Lord, when we look at his judgment. In theology, this is known as, as eschatology. And it's an English word that's built upon a Greek word eschaton, which means last. So eschatology is the study of last things. And Christians, let's just be real for a second. We have this habit of truncating or shrinking down eschatology into simply about where somebody goes when they die. So all end times, usually what we think about, we think about two different destinations, heaven or hell, and we have brought all of the teachings of scripture down to these two very common ideas as places in the future that we go based whether or not, or maybe with different kinds of understanding of it, whether or not we know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus. But the study of last things, the study of eschatology has so much more to do biblically than simply about our eternal destination. In fact, heaven and hell are infrequently the focus of the scriptures when teaching about the future. And so when, when our thoughts of forever are limited to where we go when we die... We, we not only miss the breadth of God's word about the future, but we miss their immediate implications for today. In other words, if we have belittled the future to simply two eternal destinations, that people in Christ go to heaven, that people outside of Christ go to hell, then it wrongly informs the way that you and I live today. See, what the scriptures most often teach about the last things are really twofold. The return of Christ and the culmination or or the coming together of all things through what Jesus describes as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So the return of Christ and the kingdom of God. And the nature of his teaching presents us with something that even perplexed Jesus' first disciples. That they often had questions for Jesus about the age to come. But, But notice, their questions are not about where are we going when we die, or where is this person going when they die, but they ask questions like this. What happens at the end of this present age? The time we are in now, what, what is going to happen to it, the time we're living here? In Matthew 24 and 25, I think this is a primary example of this, in, uh what then results in what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus' disciples come to him one day and ask him a particular question. Matthew 24, 3, says that as he, this Jesus, sat on the Mount of of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So Jesus had uh, been teaching them implications of the future. They come to Jesus privately afterwards. Tell us how we know that these things will come to pass. Notice the disciples have a concept of last things, which goes well beyond heaven and hell, well beyond eternal destination. They ask about two things, your coming and the end of the age. So they're asking about the coming of Christ, and they're asking about the end of the age. But let's put it this way. When it comes to last things, Jesus' first followers, those who were tracking with him during his three years of public ministry on earth, had an understanding of last things that, that were related to both presence, the presence of God, and time. Presence and time. To be sure, they would not have had this robust understanding of the second coming of Christ. In many respects, they were still trying to comprehend the first advent or the first coming of Christ. Because we have the whole New Testament, of which they, they lacked the fullness of the New Testament writings, they were living the stories that we now know as the gospel accounts. There is, though, this consistent language throughout the gospels and from Jesus himself that that. In his coming or or in his presence, things are set to rights that in his presence and in his power would bring full restoration. The Son of Man or Messiah would bring all of these things to account. So they are speaking about the coming of Christ or the Messiah, as uh, Messiah, as the act as uh, the, the uh execution or the exacting of justice and rightness to the world. So they saw much more taking place than than souls being taken away to different destinations. They were considering the age to come with this idea of God setting everything to rights. God renewing all things. God restoring all things. God making all things well. Secondly, they had a concept of time. They had some sort of comprehension. Notice, they're assuming that the, the time in which, the age in which that they are living in will come to an end and a new age would begin. Well, what, what's all this mean? Where, where is this going? And how is it connected to Romans? And how is it happening here with uh, Jesus' disciples? Well, the last things, or eschaton, are linked to the coming, or in the original language, parousia, and the end and the beginning of separate ages. That means heaven and hell are not merely destinations or final places that souls will reside. Rather, they are better understood as realms and realities of the age to come that will be ushered in at the coming of the Lord. And because Jesus has already come, we should understand that the coming of the kingdom of heaven is something that's already in progress. This is already taking place, namely through Jesus and his church by way of his spirit. So, so heaven, in many respects, a better definition, a better way of thinking about heaven is not that place that we're going to go to in Christ when we die, but it is the rule and reign of Jesus which is invading our world right now. Right now. And that in the age to come, Jesus will bring the fullness of his kingdom. Heaven and earth shall be one. His full presence will restore all things. And the new age will begin where Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things as he is today. And so when it comes to that day that Paul tells us in Romans, that day we will be judged. When Jesus returns, he sets all things to right. The things in my heart and the things in this world, the things in your heart, things in your family, things in your group, things in our church, things in the city, things in this world. He brings it all to rights. He makes it all well. And when God brings judgment, he brings this new age. So Jews had some understanding of this though much less developed than we ought to through the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. And so when Paul is teaching his first century Jewish and Gentile readers in Rome about the last things in the judgment of the Lord, they did not see themselves as part of it. They had a very small view, if you will, or a very shortened view of what all of this meant. And therefore, throughout chapter 2, they're trying to find loopholes about why they don't have to be judged. This is what we still do. Heaven and hell become sort of escape clauses for us to deal with the implications of what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 2 and here in Romans chapter 3. So the same blindness that particularly Paul's Jewish readers were facing and the same temptations are pulling at us and are plaguing us just as much as they were for them. And so here's what I want to tell you, that if Paul is laboring to get the attention of his Jewish readers whose view of God uh, and viewed particularly of God's judgment, did not include them, then God is certainly trying to get our attention about the very same thing. I think this is especially true if you have a tendency to what we'll simply call hiding in heaven when conviction shows up. Like if if over the past few weeks, as you've heard this idea of hypocrisy, you've heard about this this uh, temptation of judgmentalism or idolatry, and your response has been, well, I'm going to heaven when I die, so it doesn't really matter. That 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 it's a really short and quick answer to facing the conviction and sin and idolatry in our hearts. To simply say, well, I, I'm with Jesus and I'm going to heaven and everything's all good. It's this this shallow kind of grace, or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace, that we too quickly get to this opportunity that the cross affords us through Christ, and we don't actually deal with what maybe the Lord is speaking to us about through His Word. So we must be so careful about this. If that's been your answer you're not seeing yourself nor God correctly. If very quickly you hide in heaven and act like we don't have to deal with this now, you're not seeing yourself nor God correctly. You see, the one who dodges the discipline of God by hiding in heaven is someone who has not enjoyed the grace that is necessary for entrance into heaven, to being a part of God's people. If, if, if you try to circumvent and get around God's word and his a discipline of you and his judgment of you and of me, then we are acting as though grace has not been afforded to us in Christ in the truest sense of the word. Let me put it to you more generally. If your response to God's judgment is to find reasons why you shouldn't be judged, you are guilty. And so am I. If your response to God's judgment is that you're trying to convince yourself and others that you shouldn't be judged by God, You're merely revealing, revealing rather, that you are guilty. See, the only way to be safe from God's judgment is to first realize you deserve it. The only way to be safe from God's judgment is to first realize that you deserve it. And this is what it looks like on a daily basis to actually live in light of the age to come. See, it's in hopes, I think, of awakening his religious and moralistic readers that Paul is asking this series of questions in chapter 3. These questions are not necessarily from his audience. In many respects, I think they are for his audience. They are for his audience to consider, to to wrestle with, if you will. And many even believe that these were things that Paul was wrestling through, his own conversion from Judaism to Jesus, right? And his his own maturation in Christ. So Paul is anticipating objections that his readers would have based upon the judgment of God. And so that's what's taking place here in Romans three verses 1 through 8. Let's just look through them really quickly and see there's four questions, I think, four questions that Paul asks and answers in this particular context. Again, all anchored in this idea of God's judgment and the age to come and the return of Christ, or rather the coming of Christ. So question one is, is in verse one that he essentially asks, what's the advantage of biblical religion? He says, what advantage is there of being a Jew or of what value is circumcision? The second question he asks is in verse three. He essentially asked what, hap- asked what happens to God's promises if God's people are disobedient. And then the third question, which we'll consider today in verse 5, is God a fair judge if his righteousness is demonstrated in our unrighteousness? That's what he asks in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And then lastly, what we'll look at next week, his fourth question, if, if God gets glory when I sin, shouldn't I sin so God gets glory? God gets glory since I, when I sin, and shouldn't I sin? So God gets glory. That's verses 7 and 8. So these are the questions that, that Paul in sort of this literary back and forth, this diatribe that he is having with himself, and yet what he's doing is anticipating objections from his Jewish readers. And see, each exchange builds on the previous and deepens our understanding of what it means uh, that everyone will be judged and that that God is, is even magnified or glorified in his righteous judgment. So two weeks ago, we looked at question one, what's the advantage of biblical religion? You remember the answer? Well, there's much in every way because the Jews receive the oracles of God or the word of God. The second question we looked at last week, what happens to God's promises if, if God's people are disobedient? Well, nothing because God is faithful and what holds God's promises or the covenant together is God's faithfulness, not the faithfulness of his people. And so today, building upon those previous two questions and answers Now Paul asks, is God a fair judge if righteousness is demonstrated in the face of our unrighteousness? So he's asking this question again connected to the previous two. Notice how these are all intricately connected. The the questioner then is searching for any loophole possible to make the judgment of God God's problem and not theirs. To sort of theologically find a way out any means necessary to avoid the judgment of God. I wonder if you can relate to that because I know I can. See, in our time, we might simply say it this way, that I don't really need to worry about God's judgment because I'm already going to heaven. And so what begins to happen in the life of a believer who has this kind of theological framework for viewing their sin and the judgment of God is that we believe we are safe from God and grow in entitlement Grow in lethargy, grow, grow, grow in laziness, and grow even in judgment of others who do not have that kind of security that we have. Uh, but if you want to be safe from God's judgment, there's only one way. First, you have to admit you need it, or you deserve it. That means we don't refuse it. We don't try to wiggle out of it. We don't make excuses. We don't defend ourselves. Rather, here's what we do, church. This is this is completely different. This, this is one of the ways that the Spirit of God really demonstrates his work in our lives. When conviction comes, we don't find wiggle room out, we submit. When a friend brings something from God's word to us that we don't like, it's uncomfortable, but we know it's true, we don't make excuses, we don't push back, we submit to the Lord, we humble ourselves, and we actually trust the Lord with our stories. We trust the Lord with our spiritual formation. We don't hide in heaven we don't act as though we have this spiritual escape clause and take one of God's gift that is the age to come with him and act like it's the way that we don't have to grow or the reason we don't have to grow right here and now. Now, before we uh, seek to understand, I think what Paul is getting at in this third question and his subsequent answer, we need to understand there's a massive presumption that Paul is sort of baking in, if you will, into this particular objection. Paul is essentially articulating a concern about God's integrity, his truth, His fairness, one I believe that you and I can relate to far too greatly. Look again at verse 5. Romans 3 verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then parenthetically he says, I speak in a human way. The conclusion of Paul's previous answer um, is that our faith does not nullify God's faithfulness. It actually demonstrates God's faithfulness. So when we are unfaithful, when we fall short, when we sin, God demonstrates his faithfulness to us and that he doesn't give up on us in as much as that he maintains the covenant that he has kept with us. He doesn't not give up on us in that he sees a better us somewhere buried in that sin. No, he's faithful because he is the one who sets the agenda of his own word, of his own covenant. So one might say, Is that fair? Is it fair and true, and is God full of integrity to judge us of our evil if our evil makes God look good? Herein lies our greatest, and I think an arrogant, presumption. We believe that God owes us an answer to questions like this. We believe that God owes us an answer. We presume that God owes us a response when we ask him these kinds of penetrating, frustrating, and really arrogant questions of him. Isn't it true that we believe that we are entitled to an answer when we ask God a question? When we ask him a question, and let me make as much of an unpopular statement as I possibly can, all the while maintaining the fidelity of the scriptures. God never owes you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. When you ask him a question or when you are are crying out to him, he doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. We do not deserve anything from God but silence and distance. If you've ever taken a breath, if you woke up and breathed this morning, you are experiencing the treasures of God's mercy and grace, which no amount of your good works could have ever possibly deserved. The judge, you see, owes the guilty nothing but a sentencing. That's it. I know it doesn't feel good. I know you don't like that. Neither do I. But let's settle in this for just a little bit since we're all so very uncomfortable with the idea. In fact, maybe right now you're flipping through your theological grid and just going, is that possible? Is that right? Doesn't go, no, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. few stories, I think, capture this best and make us all way more uncomfortable than we possibly like because we've read Job's story completely wrong when it comes to this idea. See, Job was a godly man whom God allowed to be tested. God allowed Satan to take Job's health, his wealth, his family, his friends, everything. It was a God-ordained calamity. This wasn't just a natural disaster. God gave permission for Satan to bring this kind of calamity upon Job's life. And near the end of the book, Job is judged by God. We usually stop when it's like, ah, Job stays faithful in the middle of all of these really hard things. Not exactly. God comes at Job with judgment. Why? See, the reason uh, is that even though the suffering that Job endured throughout much of his story and much of the book was not because of his sin, Job did sin in the middle of his suffering. See, though the cause of the suffering was not Job's fault. In the middle of suffering, Job did sin. And in, in Job uh, 31, Job makes this grand appeal to God, essentially saying, he would, he would understand, this is so familiar to me. I, I wonder if it is for you. He would understand the troubles and the suffering he faced if he was evil. But Job says, I'm good. Uh, I'm I'm not evil. He believed himself to be righteous and above reproach. Therefore, he couldn't understand the suffering that he was going through. In other words, what's what's Job saying? Well, he's saying what I think we often say a lot when when there's suffering, when there's pain, when there's discomfort, difficulty, sorrow. He said he doesn't deserve this. You you owe me something else. I, I don't deserve judgment. See, when extreme pressure persists, something is exposed from within Job's interior life. And when we experience pressure, things are always exposed. He see, he believed that his personal righteousness entitled him to a good life of peace and free of suffering. And so he justifies himself, not God, and then God responds. And I think God responds in a kind of way that few of us have room for in our theology. Few of us have room for the way in which God responds. He's incredibly forceful and almost disarmingly sarcastic, God is. He asks him these series of questions that are incredibly sarcastic and incredibly invasive. And Job just really has to sit there and take it. Why? Because God is speaking to Job from a whirlwind. So Job's words are appropriately limited in all of this. And he merely just listens to God. But in the middle of his judgment, God pauses. He asks another question. And he gives Job a chance to answer. Here's how it's recorded in Job 40, verses 1 and 5. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. There's that pause. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job puts his hand over his mouth in response to God. Suggestion. This sometimes is the most spiritual, most God-honoring thing we can do is just stop talking. To put our hands over our mouth, to be still, Psalm 46.10 tells us, and just know he's God. Not speaking back, not defending ourselves, not trying to wiggle out of his judgment and his righteousness. Just be quiet. And believe me, I understand the irony as a preacher that, that, that the spiritually formative thing to do in many cases is for me to shut up and stop talking. But now he's quiet. And in doing so, I think in, in Job's silence, his silence really is, is a confession. His silence is an acknowledgement of God's judgment. Do you see... To be safe from God's judgment is to first realize that you and I deserve it. To be safe from God's judgment is to first realize how much we deserve it. See, we, we presume that God owes us an answer to the question in Romans 3 verse 5 because we, like Job, presume we do not deserve judgment. And so we can't possibly understand how God would judge us, me, special me, right? Right? Therefore, we aren't quiet. We keep giving him reasons why his judgment is inaccurate. See, this is a persistent spiritual, this is the persistence of spiritual entitlement that we've been discussing for the past number of weeks. And it dies hard. And notice how careful Paul is in posing the question. It's so risky in some respects to ask this question that Paul puts this parenthetical disclaimer in the way that he's even asking that question in Romans 3:5. He goes, I'm speaking in a human way. In other words, I'm I'm speaking sort of casually. I'm speaking it in a way that communicates what I think you're really thinking and what your objection is. But I don't want to be associated with speaking to God this way. See, the judge owes the guilty nothing but sentencing. And I think we presume upon God regularly. We presume upon one another daily. Think about it. It surfaces in even the ways we read text messages. You've gotten that text before that says thank you, period, and it ruined your day a period not an exclamation mark are you kidding me who does this person think they are thank you like they have no emotion and thankfulness in their heart right we absolutely presume upon people in simply the way they use punctuation in a text message there's even there's literally scientific research based on the way that we respond to punctuation and text messaging today we presume upon one another or in marriage or in our close 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 relationships we fail to trust one another give one another the benefit of the doubt Instead, we regularly seek to justify ourselves to the one who loves us the most. Real talk, every contentious conversation, and it seems like every contentious conversation I have with Laura, I'm almost immediately crystal clear that this is her fault and not mine. That, that she's done something wrong and I haven't. That, that's almost always my immediate response when we ever have a tension between us. And yet, as as the Lord works on me, as as his gospel begins to speak in the middle of hopefully me being quiet and not speaking, but just listening, more and more, my fault, my pride, my arrogance, my mean-spiritedness, my anger, those things become crystal clear to me. The things I didn't want to admit at first, see, I presume even upon my wife. Our defensiveness, I think, is exponentially increased in our relationship with the Lord. If these things exist in our human relationships, they are exposed even in larger measure in our relationship with God. See, in this case, our presumptuous with God, presumptuousness with God is revealed in the ways that we refuse to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our life, only allowing him to merely be our spiritual teacher or our example, as if this option is even open to us. See, in other words, we speak about Jesus and we're connected to the church, but Jesus and his lordship do not guide our decisions, guide our thinking, guide our affections. In fact, we aren't even sure how it is that his gospel and his lordship would speak to many of the decisions that we are making. And so we act offensive when God begins to speak to us and act upon us through his word as if he has claims, a claim to be the lord of our life. See, in truth... And what we must concede, if we're to be safe in God's judgment, is that God owes us nothing and we are guilty. This is not self-destructive. This is repentance. And as Martin Luther, the, the German theologian and pastor, says that for, all, for the Christian, all of life is repentance. So, so please hear me in this. This shouldn't be a shock to us. All of life is repentance. All of life is confessing our guilt. All of life is understanding that we deserve God's judgment. This is not a new idea. This is the consistent and steady flow of scripture, if you will, of what over and over again we need to hear. See, when Job spoke back to God, and when we get defensive with God and with each other, we reveal an extraordinarily misguided view of God. We don't think he's true. Or we don't think that he's truthful. What's more, even if we believe he's true, we don't believe he's good. And that his truth is actually something that is for our joy. So what has calcified in many of our minds that, that if God's truth reveals my weakness, reveals my sin, reveals the, the fact that I'm, I don't have it all together, however you want to put it, that exposure will be for my harm, not for my healing. This is what we've convinced ourselves that his truth will only bring stuff out that will be for my harm, not for my healing. We fear it will be to our peril, not for our resurrection. Therefore, though we may never explicitly I didn't say this, we act and therefore believe that God is not full of integrity, that God is not true. But God's truth is so close to Paul, so close to Paul's mind in this particular context. Look again, Romans chapter 3. We'll look at verse 4, so the preceding verse he says, by no means, let God be what? What's that word? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then look on to verse 7. So in the, in the following context, but if through my lie, God's, what's that word? Truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Notice then that God's truth and ideas of his truthfulness bookends the particular passage we're considering today in verse 4 and in verse Seven. And the word that Paul uses in both of those verses is exactly the same in the original language. And the original language, that word for truth means solid or binding. And in more of a relational or human sense, some personification, if you will, that the person who is true is reliable and is trustworthy. So the question for us today is do you find God worthy of your trust? Do you trust him? Do you trust him or do you constantly question him? And let's be clear. There is a huge difference between asking God a question and questioning God. Asking God a question and questioning God. When we ask God a question, we're coming to him in humility. We're coming to him because of what we lack. We're coming to him because we trust that he has what we do not wisdom, knowledge, love, truth, all of those things within his character and nature. And so we go to him with a question to submit to whatever his answer is. Questioning God is when we believe we have all of those things already. We have knowledge, we have information, we have a good way, we have a good plan, we have a good idea, and we're coming and asking and telling him, you don't have the same idea I do, what's the matter with you? So asking God a question and questioning God are actually opposites. We are coming to him very differently. We as followers of Jesus daily ask God questions. What is your will? Where would you have me go? Who would you have me serve? What would you have me know? What would you have me believe? What is the sin in my heart? We come to God humbly and exposed with questions. Now here's what you need to do, here's why I'm not guilty, here's why you've got it all wrong, and here's why you don't have the truth, but I do. See, to question God's judgment is to question his motivation, and therefore his trustworthiness, his reliability, and his truth. See, we've seen this work out in our democracy, actually, in this country just this week. As Judge Amy Coney Barrett has been going through her Senate confirmation hearings, though there have been let's be honest, a number of strong partisan underpinnings to this entire thing, as there have been to everything. The basic question we should be asking a new judge or a new justice, or Judge Barrett in this case, is will this judge judge according to the law? Will this judge judge according to the truth and without bias? In particular, will the Constitution, our grid, our lens in this democracy, this republic of truth, that, that's our lens of truth. Will it be upheld or will personal bias and will personal perspective or views or agenda, will th- those things inform her decision-making? See, this is always the case when we are interviewing or we are selecting or we are considering an earthly judge in our democracy. But the kingdom is no democracy. See, God's gra- God has graciously left no doubt As to his fidelity throughout his character and all of history, that he is a God of true action, of true words, of true nature. See, the truth and God's judgment are one and the same. So the question for an earthly judge is, will the truth and your judgment, will those be the same? In God, we see that they are. That in God's character, truth and his judgment are one in the same. See, by Romans 9 and 11, Paul really gets after this theme. He really gives us a fuller understanding now with our spiritual entitlement in full view for nine chapters and the truth and power of God being on full display. And let's just read. Let's turn to Romans 9, 19 and 24. Here's part of where Paul really zooms in on this idea and expands upon his thought in Romans 3, verse 5. So Romans 9, verse 19 through 24. says this. You will say to me then, why does he find, still find fault. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We'll get to this passage in more detail and take more time in 2024 when we finally arrive to Romans chapter 9. But for the meantime, suffice to say, what what Paul is saying here is God saves who he wills and God does not save whom he wills and who are we to speak back and question him. His glory is sufficient answer for any question we might have about his sovereignty, his truth, his judgment, his righteousness, and his justice. See, God can do as he pleases. Many of us are very uncomfortable with that because we want everyone in our life to answer to our questions and our ideas. So God doesn't fit within those boxes of our relationship. He does not need to answer us when we question him. He does not owe us anything. See, in similar fashion, the the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2, I think puts it about as plainly as you can when he says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty. To utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few. See, Paul asks the question in Romans 9, O oh man, who are you? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, Let your words be few. Job put his hand over his mouth. This is not God's word belittling us mere mortals. This is God's word teaching us about our mortality. This this is not God belittling us. This is God teaching and instructing us. We are creatures. He is creator. We are finite beings. He is infinite. We are small. He is big. We are limited. He is limitless. We are foolish. He is wise. So we need to trust him. This is our response. We should trust him. See, back in chapter 3, Paul's argument is that truth is indistinguishable from God's judgment. And his judgments are indistinguishable from God's truth, that God is truth, that God is true. And therefore, these judgments in particular, his judgment in the age to come on the day of the Lord, they are true. That's how Paul ultimately answers the question. Remember, the third question, is God fair? Is he a fair judge if his righteousness is demonstrated in our unrighteousness? The answer, yes. God couldn't be judge of the world otherwise. That's the answer in the passage, that God couldn't judge the world otherwise. Now, now perhaps at first blush, that seems like a bit evasive. That seems like it's not answering the question directly. But remember, he's writing especially to Jewish readers here. And to to the Jew, they didn't question whether or not God was the judge. This was a fundamental idea of who they knew God to be. But what they didn't realize is that questioning God had an unintended theological consequence. It was going to lead to a contradiction. And can I suggest to you, Every time we question God, it has an unintended consequence. Every time we question God. See, our questioning of God always has an unintended implication. See, our our refusal to trust God, in other words, always results in our peril. This principle is as true for us as it was for Paul's original readers. See, I think this entire word, this idea that we've been talking about, is really like sandpaper against the cultural grain, if you will, our culturally informed bias for personal autonomy. The idea that we would be able to write our own futures, that, that we would be able to defend ourselves. And so I think that's why we're so defensive about God's judgment and question his integrity, because we believe we shouldn't, or rather we should be our own masters. And so when somebody speaks to us like this, it goes at the heart of some cultural stories and narratives that we take in all the time and believe. See, we think that the way of the world should be that we get to determine our own faith or at least get to say what our faith looks like, even as Christians. This is where our view of the last things, I think, comes back into focus for us. See, the natural course of glorifying or the glorification of personal agency leads to a vision of the future when and where all that matters is where individual souls go when they die, heaven or hell. See, I think this is why heaven and hell makes so much sense to us. is because personal autonomy and not having our own master makes so much sense to us. It's a natural conclusion. See, our eschatology is neither submissive to God nor inclusive of his people. And therefore, it fails to rightly inform our present age. See, if eternity is about us, why would this age be any different? If, if the future is all about my individual soul, making sure that it's in heaven, why would my present be any different and I think that we're seeing the way that we live individualistically self-servingly selfishly not refusing judgment really reveal that we have a wrong view of the future and of the present see because of this I don't think we long for the age to come maybe maybe I'll just be honest and like take it on I don't long for the age to come I believe the way that I should I I don't hit a problem and just go Lord Jesus I cannot wait till you return and set this to rights I, I don't grieve over my sin enough and say, Lord, I can't wait till you come back and the fullness of your kingdom takes hold of this world and transforms my heart completely. There's so much in my daily life that I just believe that in my own work or my own hustle or my own integrity or my own faculties that these are the things I have to trust in. I don't long for forever because I don't trust him today. I wonder about you. We always have to ask ourselves this question How is this text now pressing in on our own hearts? See, I don't think that we long for the age to come because we have such a truncated view of it. It's so small, it's so little. See, many of us do not have a guttural angst every day that Jesus would show up. And why? Here's the real reason. See, for many of us, we are so in step with the cultural patterns of this city, of this world of our our country, that that we cannot imagine anything ever getting any better. We've got a really good life right now, so why would I long for something else? Let me put it to you even more bluntly. We have replaced the kingdom of heaven with the substitute of the American dream and cannot believe that God's kingdom could be better than what we've come up with. And so we've given ourselves to the American dream, to the pursuit of whatever it is that this world says that's the good life. And so we don't long for eternity because we're like, yo, upwardly mobile middle class, i got the new gadgets and widgets and apps, and it can't be better than this. Gusto Gonzalez is a Cuban-American professor and author in his book, Manana. He really articulates this collective apathy that he has observed, and I think that we live within our current experience. He says this, Those who today already benefit from the power, respect, and prestige can hardly understand the enormous significance of this new reality. He speaks about the age to come. For those whose daily lot is suffering, poverty, and humility, and who are told that in order, in the order of Minyana, which is a sense, is already here, they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy. See, when we believe that we are entitled and freed from judgment, we do not long for the age to come. We cherish this age and its idols. Meanwhile, others around us, brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors, are riddled with suffering and pain and are able to quickly acknowledge not only their great need, but this guttural angst that one day all shall be well. See, the latter is privy to a particular kind of knowledge that the former is willfully ignorant of. See, we might say, well, that's just what somebody's experience is, but we are happy to distance ourselves from that experience and knowledge in our own comfort and self protection. See, we look to what Gonzalez calls mañana or the age to come with completely different expectations, one with self at the center and the other with God. See, because of our different family experiences, perhaps our cultural stories, our confession of sin, those massively different. Those massive differences, if you will, exist even within our church family. After God spoke for about 10 minutes to Job, well, at least it took me 10 minutes to read it, Job takes his hand off of his mouth and he speaks again. He's heard what God has said, his verbal accusation, his verbal clarity of conviction and calling for him to be contrite. Here's what Job says in Job 42 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. I think at first reading we might read that word despise and think it's self destructive, but it's not. That word that he uses speaks about association. See, remember last week we we looked at this idea that there's a big difference between self destruction before God and repentance before God. When Job says, I despise myself, he's literally saying he is avoiding associating with himself. Instead, he is seeing, hearing, and agreeing in a fresh way, or associating, rather, with God. He is agreeing with God. Sin, then is when we are self-centered, when we see ourselves at the center of our lives, center of our story, center of this age, center of the next. Repentance is the act of being de-centered by God's Spirit and re-centered on God. Sin is being self-centered, and repentance is being de-centered and re-centered upon God. Are you with me in this? And therefore, when we uh, have an eschatology which is centered on self and a life which is centered on self. Repentance, then, is the unlearning of self at the center and taking on an identity where suffering, pain, and humility actually leads us to a great hope in this age to come when all shall be well. What we see in the life of Job is what is necessary for growth, healing, and maturity, and joy. There's no shortcuts around this church. It's that same paradox that he is safe from the judgment of God by first acknowledging, admitting, confessing, and realizing he deserves God's judgment. This is how we begin the recentering experience. Not centered on self, but centered on God. We must first confess that we deserve God's judgment. See, you and I are safe from God, not by questioning his character and sort of catching him in a theological conundrum that he goes, oh wow, I'd never thought of that before. He doesn't owe us an answer. He doesn't owe us anything. Rather, we are safe from God's judgment by acknowledging that we are guilty and deserve his judgment. This is a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction that is actually true. Well, how is this exactly true? How is it possible that we could be freed from judgment only when we admit that we need judgment or acknowledge that we deserve judgment? In a word, Jesus. Jesus is the reason why. See, John uh, Stott, the great 20th century preacher, poses this uh, in the form of a question and answer, not unlike Paul when he writes in his book, The Cross of Christ. How then could God express simultaneously his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon only by providing, he says, a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon? Can I get an Amen. That Jesus is our substitute, but only when we admit we need a substitute. Jesus is only your substitute, church, when you admit that you need a substitute. And so, come to him. Despise yourself in the face of sin in the presence of the Lord. Don't question him. Bow your knee to him. If you have to, put your hand over your mouth. You see, Jesus is the power of this gospel paradox. The mystery of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is our judge and our substitute. This is how God is true, God is truth, in that he is both faithful to his holiness by dealing with our sin, and he is faithful To his love by pardoning us, his guilty people made innocent through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Near the conclusion of his book on manana, Professor Gonzalez gives us a really clear picture of tomorrow in light, or rather today in light of tomorrow. He explains that if we truly see a day when the Lord is coming, a new age will begin, it will change the way that we think we spend our money, we talk, we confess, we do life together right now. You see, another perilous effect of individualism, of heaven and hell, is that we belittle our daily mission, make it simply about evangelism and not justice. To be sure, there are some Christian traditions that do the exact opposite, that make all of the mission of the church, justice and no evangelism. In other words, that we are to be a people who do not merely speak about the kingdom, but live out the kingdom and work towards the ends and purposes of the kingdom. But if Christ is the one who will come and set all things to rights, then we have something to say and do. If God is the one who will, once again, his son will come and bring the fullness of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven together, then we cannot pull apart the ideas of speaking the gospel and living out the gospel. We seek justice and we proclaim the lordship of Jesus. These ideas could only be pulled apart in an American economy that says one is a little bit too hard, let's just pick the other. Do you see, Jesus is the one who ultimately protects us from judgment but only when we admit admit that we need his protection. Jesus will protect you, but will you admit that you need him to protect you? His substitution, though, does not, and should not lead us to passivity and entitlement. It actually leads us to humility and service. We become like him, we live like him, we become a people in some respects who substitute ourselves for the sake of others daily. What's that mean? When we come underneath the protection of God, We don't then become a people who constantly and feverishly protect ourselves. We actually serve others. Because when we know that God has protected us, that in Christ as we live this life and are exposed to the elements of this life, that God has promised in Christ to protect us, we can stop protecting ourselves. We can stop guarding ourselves. We can stop taking care of our self-centered ways. We can actually take care and serve others. That's what it means to love our neighbors and to love each other. Knowing that God will judge the world one day, we share the gospel and we seek justice. We willingly take on the discomfort and suffering and inconvenience and cost of someone else in order that they would experience healing, a lightening of their load. They would experience encouragement. They would experience comfort because that's exactly what God in Christ has done for us on a cosmic scale. So don't question God and try to avoid his judgment. Bow down to him and worship him that in Christ he has taken away all of your burdens and that in Christ You and I, by God's grace, will be protected from the wrath to come. Now we get to be a people of his kingdom right here and now. So let's ask him for his help. Father, forgive us. We've sinned. Forgive me. I've sinned. I'm so concerned. I'm so considered. I'm so thinking about my own protection. I'm failing to trust that in Christ you have protected me. And so, Father, we just ask for your help. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would do a great work in our hearts, and our church, that you would help us to live in light of tomorrow today. And not a tomorrow where individual souls will find eternal destinations, but a tomorrow that is invading the spaces of our lives right now, where the rule and reign of King Jesus is taking hold of our lives right now. So, God, would you have your will, have your way, Among us we ask in Jesus' name, amen.